you know, these are rides where um, you're the hero. Where in a film, you're a passive uh, watcher, a voyeur of the whole thing. So we love this idea that you can be the hero of the moment and um, of this fantasy that we sort of have all lived in our own heads. back to creative how the podcast for curious creatives all right everybody think about your favorite movie now think about being the person in charge of expanding the universe introduced in that movie you know what today's guest amanda johnstone bat does just that she's responsible for creating immersive theme park rides and experiences for some of hollywood's biggest movies so this has got to be one of the coolest and funnest episodes we've done so get ready and, and have some fun Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are too. And I think, um, you know, the uh, listeners will have some context about what you do uh, throughout, but, and so they'll understand this eventually, but we really want to know first and foremost, what's the scariest ride you've ever been on? Okay. So the scariest ride, I think all theme park aficionados can agree on are what's called star flyers, which are those swings um, that kind of go around in a circle, like 10 floors in the air. Those are without a doubt the scariest ones. Um, but for me personally, um, out here in London, uh, we've got a group that's, um, it's called Hollycomb St- Steam Fair. And it's all rides that are over 100 years old and they're steam powered. Oh, my Lord. And yeah, so there was one that we went on. And uh, Baram, I love this place to death. I know they're perfectly safe. Everything logically in my brain says they're perfectly safe. But when you have a man shoveling coal into a Ferris wheel that's 100 years old and starting to rust and lean about 10 degrees in the wind on an axis that it shouldn't lean, you start to get a little bit nervous. Um, So I'd say that was probably the scariest ride that I'd ever been on, even though it was maybe a a little kid's Ferris wheel. I, I agree with you. I had the fortune or maybe misfortune of riding one of those swings at Hyde Park there during the Christmas festival thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was so high. And so cold. Mm-hmm. I and and I hadn't ridden one in a long time, and and it just scared the hell out of me. I was like, "Get me down, get me down." I don't, I don't think I opened my eyes, and and whatever that says about yeah. me, but it's it, just they're just a couple of little chains, and there's barely yeah, anything. Right. Yeah, there's nothing to hold on to. Oh man, they're so scary. And I feel like that one was higher than normal. I don't know. It, it's, it's definitely higher than the Hershey Park we got. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so then. That's the scariest. Now, what's what's the best? And this is, you might be more qualified than anybody we've ever met before to talk about the best ride in the world. Well, I mean, this is a little bit tricky because it's like, how do you pick your favorite child? Right. Um, and I certainly haven't been on all of the rides in the world. So it's, and I'm going to have to classify some of these. So probably my favorite roller coasters, um, X2 at Magic Mountain in California, Space Mountain, both Space Mountains at uh, Disneyland and Disney World. Amazing. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean, probably the best dark ride. Love going on that one over and over. And then um, Spider-Man at Universal Studios Florida is a really amazing example of what a dark media ride can be. Um, And that's like over 10 years old and it's still holding up great. We absolutely love that ride. And so we can set some context for the audience and Maybe everybody's aware of what a dark media ride is, and maybe they aren't. Can you just kind of break that down real quick? 
Sure. So um, a dark ride is kind of uh, where you're in a vehicle of some kind. It's probably a carriage that seats like two people. You know, sometimes there's eight or more and um, you're traveling across a track and different scenes will be played out in front of you that will tell a story. Um, so Pirates of the Caribbean is actually a dark ride. You just happen to be in a boat. Um, and Spider-Man, um, the car will actually travel up to different screens that have projected media upon them. And um, that's what our team probably does the most amount of work doing is creating the content that gets projected onto those screens. Really cool. So this one is a little bit of a personal question for me because my, me and my family and I really like Harry Potter. And we went to uh, Universal Studios a few years ago and, and went to Harry Potter World. Have, have you been there? I, I Yes, I've been to um, the one in Hollywood. And uh, technically, there's two in Florida. There's the ones at Islands of Adventure and um, the original Universal Studios Florida. But I haven't been to Universal Japan's version yet. So hopefully I can do that in the next year or so. So three out of four, not bad, but yes. Um, that is an amazing land. Like what they've managed to create in that space really does an incredible job of just transporting you into this world of Harry Potter. And um, you just, you expect to see wizards flying around and what they did with the bank and then having this dragon that sits on top of the bank that breathes fire like every hour. So amazing. Um, it's probably the best example of how much theming you can do in a land um, to really get people excited about the world that you've created for them and the ride that they're about to experience. Has that set some kind of bar for you guys now? I think so. So um, the the best ones so far that we've been seeing over the past couple of years are um, the Wizarding Worlds, uh, all four of them, Pandora, uh, which is at um, the um, sorry Animal Kingdom with Disney World, and we're really excited to see what the new Galaxy's Edge, the the Star Wars lands, are going to look like at the different parks. Um, but I think that's going to be like next level kind of stuff that we're seeing from theme parks because they're a lot more like immersive theater where we want the audience to engage with the people around them and the sets around them as well. Um, because we, we just want it to be an all consuming experience. I think that's cool. I think, um, I get excited. It's kind of weird just the detail and maybe you do too, being in that world, but just going and being able to buy a drink from that world, you know, a themed drink. Like I, I hope maybe in star Wars, my dream is they're going to be able to buy blue milk. I think that's a huge miss if you can't buy that. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 they've already said that you can do it. They, oh, they've awesome. released pictures. Um, yeah, so uh, we have been um, pretty religiously following all of the news that's been drip fed to us over the past few weeks. And yes, blue milk is something you'll definitely be able to buy. Um, and they've announced like all the different foods that are going to be themed from the different worlds and the bars that are going to be there. So that is, yeah, that's really exciting. But um, you're, you're absolutely right. It's like that's part of the... The thing is, you know, as an audience, we want to be a part of this world that filmmakers have created for us. And we can't be there on set. And maybe these movies are never going to be continued as sequels. So this is an incredible way for somebody who is a massive fan of the genre to be able to go and experience what it's like to a certain level, what this this fantasy could be 
that we've all kind of thought about like, oh, what could, what would it be like if I was a Jedi? What would it be like if I was a wizard? And, and now you get to have that like for a day or so, which is really exciting. It's amazing. Um, so Amanda, why don't we get into, you know, exactly what you do? And if you could just discuss, you know, your current role and what you're doing right now. Sure. Um, so I am a CG supervisor at Framestore here in London. Um, we work, I, I'm predominantly um, slated to work with the rides department, um, which is a very new department for us. We've had it for about three or four years now. And um, my role is to sort of be involved with the creative team and the production staff to sort of figure out what kind of tools we're going to need and interpret that director's vision into a, um, well, like a technical final image and um, how we're actually going to achieve some of those notes. Um, We tend to grow a lot of our staff as well. So I'll have a lot of people um, who help me create all of the art and the content. And so my job is kind of like the traffic cop is to make sure that they've got all of the right information that they need, all of the correct tools that they might want and um, how information is going to pass from one department to the next while also having this other creative director on my shoulder wanting to make changes constantly. Um, so I'm kind of always on the shop floor helping out the artists as much as possible. Gotcha. Gotcha. But it kind of, you know, take us back to how, how you got into this business. I think you have a pretty fun origin story. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I was a lucky kid growing up. Um, I grew up in Southern California, actually very close to Disneyland. And um, I was going to the movies probably every week and saw Star Wars, um, Phantom Menace. And it looked off for me, which kind of spun into a, a lifelong journey now into why it looked wrong and how it could have been better. Um, so I went to art school. I actually went to the University of Arizona for one year because my parents were super strict and thought like the only way that you can get a real job in this world is by going to a university. Um, and that did not work out. So I went to, <laughs> to art school and uh, studied animation for a really long time. Um, really long. That's a terrible thing. I went for four years. That seems like a long time. Um, and that's fair to that. Um, and uh, Digital Domain was around the corner. And a friend uh, was working there and he said he should interview for one of the jobs that we have. So I lied on my resume and I said that I had graduated when I was still in my final like six months, got the job and uh, was working nine to six and then going back to art school and working on my demo reel from like seven until midnight and doing that every day for like six months. Um, And my first job there was uh, something called dust busting, which is way, way back when this is like 15 years ago now. We used to scan all of the film that we would need to make visual effects for. So we actually had a massive room that was dedicated to just scanning all of the um, the plates. And sometimes a hair would get caught in the gate or there'd be dust in the room and we would have to hand paint out all of those frame by frame. Wow. So that was my very first job. <laughs> uh, very long and tedious, but got me through the process. Um, and then from there, I just... Uh, I just kept talking to a lot of the artists and um, figuring out what I wanted to do. And so they kept giving me more jobs to advance through. And um, then I started working at some of the other companies in the LA area. So I was at Rhythm and Hughes, Sony, um, 
and a couple of others. And I would sort of bounce back and forth because you at the time would only work on a project for three to six months. And then you'd move on to the next company, um, which seems like a very transient lifestyle and something my parents could never really understand. Like, why aren't you at a company for a really long time? But it's actually kind of the nature of the business is you're always searching for what the next six month job is going to be. How far out do you line those up? So you're on a job, how many are stacked up or is it like end a job, go look, end a job, go look, well, are you kind of doing? When I was, do- when I was doing that, it would be, you know, a month out, you would be looking for the next job or you would be either contacting or being contacted by someone in human resources saying rhythm and Hughes needs, you know, you to, to work start date is this, what can you do? And it's like, well, I can, you know, start at this time or not. And then you would stack them up like that. Um, I've now got friends who are working in Vancouver who do the same thing, but they stack up three to four jobs. So they might be booked out two years um, with like six months gigs between different companies. Also, I don't want to let this slide, but I really hope lying on your resume is in your creative house section. <laughs> it can be. Um, I mean, the I, talent always hates when I tell that story at like student recruiting events. They're like, no, don't lie. We don't want you to lie. It's like, yeah, sometimes you got to lie a little bit. It's fine. You're the second you know? person in the entertainment industry to have told us that. Really? Yes. Who was the first? Greg Garcia, the TV writer. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. We're all just a bunch of liars. <laughs> the stories, it's basically a lie anyway. It was That's his right. philosophy. <laughs> so that that was kind of how I got into this. And um, then I started getting asked to um, do work around the world. Uh, so I went to Weta to work on Avatar for a little while and then came back to work at DreamWorks. And um, now I've been here in London for about eight years. You you've de- definitely have heard this before, but I feel like, so I've listened to some of the talks that you've given, and now obviously we're talking. I think you have a little bit of an accent now. Really? Um, it comes out, especially when I'm drunk. Uh, <laughs> this is, I'm, I'm not drunk at the moment. I, I maybe, no, I'm not. Um <laughs> <laughs> there's certain words that I've sort of picked up. My, uh, my husband's actually from New Zealand and okay. having been here for eight years and only hearing the British dialect every now and again, it sort of creeps in a little bit, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Is that, is that <laughs> not to stick on this, but I feel like it's shorthand, right? Like you just, uh, you just say it the way, you know, the, the majority of your conversation are going just so there isn't any confusion. Uh, I feel like that's a, a way of just streamlining conversations. Yeah, sometimes. I, I definitely, um, I say certain words that I've learned in the UK, I will say with a British accent. Um, but I, I'm now starting to say Z instead of Z all nice. the time and some other things. And so people every now and again will call me up. It's like, oh, you sound like one of us now. That's one of the best. Yeah. That's one of the best nuances. I think I sort of feel like I want to say that too, but I'll be a pretender. <laughs> you know, I can't do it. Um, so on your current team, can you describe what the various roles are um, and, you know, how many people work on a specific type of project? It varies project to project. Um, We will always have three people on the show um, that start out the show and, and end it. Um, Their titles might change a little bit depending on the size, but there's always a supervisor, a director and a producer. And, um, 
then what we do is we uh, take a look at the brief, take a look at some of the things that the client is trying to achieve with it. And um, we don't actually have artists that are specifically assigned to working on rides. Um, so what we do is we get to pull from Framestore's massive pool of artists and say, you know, we're, we're working on something that we know that you would be really great on and uh, you'd be able to contribute so much to this wonderful ride that we're working on. Um, a great example of that is, ooh, I'm really hoping that I'm allowed to say that we worked on this one, but um, we helped with the Guardians of the Galaxy ride at uh, Disneyland in California. And um, that was really a good transition for us because um, we had done a lot of the Guardians of the Galaxy films. So it made sense to be able to say, here's an animator that worked on Rocket Raccoon and we need to have Rocket Raccoon in the ride. Why don't we just use the exact same talent that worked on the film for the ride? And we do that for a lot of the other rides that we've got in house as well. Um, and it creates a much more flexible environment for us to work in. Um, and it's also really great for myself and some of the other artists because, you know, one day you can be working on a TV commercial Next day, you can be working on a TV show or a ride or something. So there's always a great amount of variety that's in that. Um, so from there, we sort of decide, do we need other people on the team, depending on the size, who can be um, leads of each sort of group? So maybe we've got something that's animation focused, and we might want an animation lead that's a part of that who can then uh, master uh, another 10 to 15 animators below him or her. Uh, and that could be the same thing with all of the other different disciplines within that show. Great, great. Real quick, selfish question. Um, you know, if you're, and we'll get way more into rides in a minute, but just since you're describing the team, do you need to develop the narrative of a ride? And if so, is it, are there writers involved? So sometimes um, we're kind of, putting ourselves in this position where we can take on any and all aspects of an attraction. And um, that includes writing it, creating all of the art design, um, working with the engineering firm as to what how the ride is going to move. Um, we've had a, uh, a project that was um, released last year in China, and it's called Pearl Quest, uh, which is on our website if anybody wants to see it. We had full creative control over that. They sort of gave us the outline of a folk tale that they wanted us to um, create a story for. And they said, this is the, um, the ride profile that we're going to use. So it's going to be a dark red style and it's got to be two floors. But I don't think we had a lot more other restraints beyond that. So uh, we do have our creative directors will also write the scripts and then um, we'll go and the majority of this is all in-house, by the way. We've got design, art department, everything here for us, which is wonderful. Um, and then we go to the concept team and say, paint up all of these different environments and a look and a style for us, um, so, which is really nice. It's great to have that level of freedom. Um, at other times, we might have a client that comes to us and they already know their brand because it's well-established. They are very close to finalizing a script, potentially, and they already know what the look is. They already know where the ride is. Um, so we can go in and, and kind of have a play with them and go, how much are you in love with 
the script that you've given us? Could we maybe make a couple of tweaks if needed? Um, so there's always a little bit of leverage. Uh, so leverage is the wrong word. There's always a little bit of room for changes as we need um, if we feel like it doesn't quite fit the story. Great. Why don't we stick on this for a little bit? Because I think now we're getting into the actual process. So you talked about a client approaching you. Can mm-hmm. you talk, do they, are they writing a brief? How does, how does that internal workflow or how does a project get initiated internally? It can come a couple of different ways. Um, we have had clients who have come in and just said, you know what our IPs are? What do you think you could turn into a ride? And then it's from absolute zero to whatever we can come up with in a moment's notice. Um, frequently, the client will come in and say, uh, we have already planned out that we're going to have the land and we already have the space. We already have the, the ride engineering done and ready. Um, so come to us with some script ideas and then that will get batted around for quite a while. Um, usually there'll be a supervisor, um, typically my boss will go through and bid all of that out and say, this is how much money we're expecting it to be. Then there's kind of a little bit of a back and forth about, you know, what if we made certain changes Would that adjust the bid in any way? Um, but by the time that it comes to me, it's a little bit more fleshed out as we know that we are, um, having a ride that lives in this part of the world that is telling this story and needs to work with um, this kind of ride profile. And that's usually about it. And then we go through and have a lot of meetings with the client. And I usually just sit back and listen because I want to see what um, they focus on the most. You know, what are a lot of keywords that you're saying to me? You know, is this scary and how scary? And so we ask a lot of questions. Um, and then from there, I tend to go away and think about the different software and the different tools that we can use and then have a big breakdown of, I think I'm going to need this many artists to achieve the quality and the, um, the, the sort of design points that they're looking for. I'm really interested in the, um, pitch process and the client interaction that you just mentioned. Um, I feel like we could talk about this for hours, but when you guys are pitching, is it uh, multiple different sort of art directions and, and narratives? Or can you just kind of go into a little bit of detail about that process? Um, okay. So le- so I don't break any NDAs. What is one of your favorite movies? And then we'll just create a pitch for it right now. Wow. I just literally wrote that down. Um, how about... The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. So let's a, do one that I've never that. seen. uh, um, not necessarily for kids, but Pulp Fiction. What about that? Okay. Um, yeah. So what we tend to do is go, oh, wow, Pulp Fiction. That's, that's kind of a tricky one because that's going to be adult based. And we, um, we break down all of the different things that we immediately remember without having seen the, re-seen the film. And we'll do a, um, paragraph treatment on what this ride could be. So, you know, let's say it's going to be a, um, a car-based ride and you've got to get into something that looks like that little Volkswagen bug that Bruce Willis drives around in and avoid hitting Ving Rhames' character and avoid the, the guys that are in, you know, the, the little um, the Nazi shop where they get 
hurt. I, I don't want to talk too much about that because <laughs> no I'm sure this is, no yeah, no spoilers for everybody. Um, and so we, we start to go through and go, you know, um, this could actually be really interesting as a um, kind of like a choose your own adventure style, which is um, a product that we have that's called the adventure, um, the adventure machine. And you make choices, you know, do you hit Bing Rams? Do you avoid him? But then maybe you've got to go into the fight, something like that. So we, we go through and we start to pitch that and um, we go, you know, we really love the adventure machine idea, but maybe they want something that is um, a little bit more, uh, less interactive and they just want to tell the story in a different way. So we then go through and we might say, here's three different options for what you could do with that IP. And sometimes we even put in notes that's like what the queuing area could be like, or we might um, frequently we like to do the merchandising as well. We've never been asked to do merchandising, but we still go, could you please make this a t-shirt? Because we would love it so much. Um, so we might add in little notes like that. And um, in that, we might have quick concept sketches about what some of them could be and this big like deck pack. And um, then we try to also have different reasons for why like you know at the moment you probably can't use bruce willis because this is a movie that's what 25 years old now so how do we how do we not use bruce willis as an actor today as a live action you know what can we do to portray him as the younger version of himself um and then it just kind of spirals from there Um, but we try to in the very early pitches keep it down to like two days worth of work and then if they like it, then we'll do a little bit more time and continue to develop it with, with the client. Let's say they bought into one of the concepts you've pitched. Do you then take mm-hmm. that concept and do any sort of focus groups or testing just to see that the, the narrative is going to resonate? So this is kind of a surprising one. No. Um, and actually, it was when you asked me that question in an email that I sort of went, oh, wow, that's, that's actually kind of interesting. We, we sort of don't. Um, so a ride will usually take about six years from start to finish from the theme parks side. Um, it's a little bit shorter of a timeline when it comes through us, but that it could be really matured. And um, I don't know if either of you have been to Disneyland or Disney World, where, or sorry, uh, Universal Studios, where you might have somebody with like an iPad and they want to ask you very generic questions. So I was there when they asked me some very generic questions about Star Wars Land, which was like, what would you think about a sci fi style land with a hotel where you could maybe wear a rope? You know, it's like very, very broad, but you can clearly guess the theme. Um, they only do questions like that. Um, we tend not to have people do advanced rides of the ride uh, because there's a lot of secrecy involved in these. Remember, it's six years to kind of get one open. So they they don't have like advanced screenings that where we can then change the media if maybe they, they don't like it so much. Um, and so really, the only thing that we do a lot of testing on is... Um, the engineering side. So sometimes there might be a KUKA arm. Um, we do a lot of testing with VR where it seems like you're riding the ride and it goes uh, past each screen while you're wearing a VR helmet. Um, but we, we really don't bring in 
outside for demographic screenings. That's interesting. And I think I definitely understand the secrecy of it. When you were just describing the Pulp Fiction thing, I was thinking about, you know, several other scenes that you could have used, like robbing a diner or Jackrabbit Slim's twist contest. And so I think it's sort of like, I guess maybe Sean and I were thinking that you would pass ideas by a group, but it just seems like that's probably the client, right? Yeah, it's really just the client. Okay. Or you guys are just so amazing at what you do that you've got your finger yeah, on man, the pulse. You know what's going to cut through and uh, resonate. <laughs> <laughs> right. They always love our staff. Um, it's, so we work really closely with the client who knows their brand quite, quite well. Um, we will also work with the original writers and um, or the original directors for some of that. So they have a say in um, what some of this, this story is going to be. Um, but in terms of like, do you want to see Jack Rabbit Slim's twist contest or do you want to see, you know, crazy man driving down the street, right. getting hit uh, in the back of the head, any of that kind of like there, there's no um, focus group with sort of what will be the audience. It's only internal. Yeah. That's super cool. I mean, I, I mean, that's, and it's also, I like the continuity whenever you, like you mentioned, when you can interject it between the original animators, original writers, original directors. I think that's a detail that I think goes a long way. Yeah. It's really neat too, because um, we're, we're finding that this is just another way to um, advance the story. And we're finding that we're getting a lot of rides that are opening up that are kind of spinoffs of what the main canon-based storylines are. Um, so as an example, the Guardians of the Galaxy ride, that's clearly a spinoff ride that's happening outside of any of the plot lines of the two movies. Um, but what's really cool about it is as we create a third and a fourth sequel, we can add in those new characters or those new villains into that ride by just changing one or two screens. And it can refresh the entire ride um, if that's needed uh, with very minimal kind of real changes. You know, you don't have to rip down the entire building and build it anew. You can just change one or two kind of elements. And you can also tell the story in a way that couldn't have been done from the film. You know, these are rides where... Um, you're the hero. Where in a film, you're a very passive uh, watcher, a voyeur of the whole thing. So we love this idea that you can be the hero of the moment and um, of this fantasy that we sort of have all lived in our own heads, and um, and be um, be a part of this group. So you know, you get to be a part of Harry Potter school for a little while, and then get to join the school at the end, um, or you get to be like a transformer and then, you know, be a part of the Autobots club at the end of that. So um, it's really kind of this, this neat way of continuing on the storylines, but just from a, a different medium. That's cool. And you actually bring up a question or, or just actually a point we want to talk about, which is this idea of immersion. And you mentioned it a little bit ago, when you do pitches, you supply some notes about the cues and that, that concept of gates. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you guys utilize that to get everybody in the sort of quote unquote mindset to be the hero? Yeah. Um, so gates is something we kind of use internally, but the, the concept sort of exists throughout the whole industry. Um, the ride is the finale of the moment. So what you need to do is you need to find a way to help explain to the audience what's about to happen. 
And it's really, really tricky to do to inform an audience about what they're about to have happen or where they are in five minutes, especially if they've never seen the IP before. So if you've never seen a single Harry Potter movie or read any of the books, how do you explain to them what this world is? So if you think about it kind of like concentric rain rings away from the ride, you've got the ride itself within the loading bay, within the queue area, and then the land, and then it potentially even swells out to the park itself. Um, so a queue area is the first space that we look to in terms of um, setting the, the right mood and the right tone for what's about to happen. And sometimes you have pre-show-based media that, um, that helps out with this, uh, but it's a really great way to say, you know, is this sci-fi? Is this fantasy? Where are you? Why do you have 20 tourists that have all of a sudden been dropped in this land that isn't Florida? And why are they banded together as one? Um, so we, we really kind of need to set the tone for that. Um, another important thing is to sort of say, why, is this going to be a scary ride? Is this going to be funny? Because you, you also want families to know what the experience is going to be so they don't lock a small child into a scary, terrifying ride for five minutes. Um, and then beyond that, the land um, and Wizarding World of Harry Potter is a really great example of this. The land itself is a um, getting yourself into the mindset again about where where things are and who all of these characters are going to be. Um, and it's to create a suspended uh, disbelief. Um, so there's a lot of things that we do there. Some of it is theming with the shops and the restaurants and the food. Some of it is the um, the employees, which Disney refers to as cast members, because they usually have dialogue that they need to say specifically to an audience member that, again, helps create this suspended world. Um, and then uh, the other thing that we look to are eyelines. We want to make sure that if you are in Harry Potter, you can't look over a rooftop and see into the Simpsons land, or you can see into a sci-fi world. Again, this is all about creating suspended disbelief because everything that we're showing you is a magic trick. Um, you are somewhere else and we can't have you see the giant machine that exists behind these walls because it will completely break down the illusion for you. Um, the, the park itself, we also kind of think of it as a gate because people, um, people are waiting for this moment they have been planning this day for six months, a year, maybe even longer. And they are so excited to just get to this theme park. And getting through those front, front gates of Disneyland, you immediately have this sense of um, nothing can go wrong. Nothing can hurt me here. And they've really done a great job of um, reinforcing that. Uh, sometimes to people's detriment, there are some people who think that they can, you know, the, the real world physics no longer exist, um, or that, uh, there, there's some story that a cast member told me that was, um, she got a complaint that it was raining and the, um, the visitor said, you know, why is it raining? It should never rain at Disneyland. Don't you guys have control over the weather? It's like, no, we don't control the weather. But people have this impression about what the theme park is, and that changes the moment that you walk through those gates. Um, so if you take that through in each and every gate, you know, we, we need to have somebody who um, 
can change from the the Simpsons land where it's all cartoons and they're a part of the Simpsons world to Harry Potter. Uh, and Universal does an amazing job of this in Florida because it looks like you're walking through the gates of Waterloo and it looks like you've tapped on one of the stones from Diagon Alley. And that's a perfect transition point to get you from backstage New York through this kind of London area to then in an, an amazing wizard space. Um, so that was a very loaded answer to your question <laughs> about gates. But um, yeah, that it's, it's just transition points. The way you described the, the customer sort of expectations was really, really cool. And it's like, it just makes me think about how complicated the projects that you guys work on are. And I think you said this before. Did you say it's generally a six-year process? It can be. Um, it can be longer. It can be shorter. It really depends on what is, um, what's being asked of us. Uh, I'd say that an average is probably six years for a brand new ride. Because if you think about it, you've got to get the space planned out. Um, you've got to get the engine. You've got to plan out which um, ride profile you're going to use. You know, is this going to be a dark ride or a coaster? Buy that. Have all the material shipped. Um, and then go through the story making process. So some of our rides, um, we've got some that are a year from start to finish just on the, the media creation side. And then we've got some that are three to four years, again, just on the media side. And uh, none of that also includes any of the, the sort of land and world planning that they have to do in advance of that. So, yeah, it's, it's a fairly long process for some. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I know that you have a kind of a, well, we think it's a really interesting story about the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Can you, can you tell, tell us about that? Yes, I can. So I think when I told you guys the story, I actually merged two stories and uh, I went back and got some like specific research notes on it. Um, there's a book called Mouse Tales, which if you're ever curious about Disneyland and its creation, uh, that's a really great book to read. Um, so Pirates of the Caribbean opened up in 1967 and it's had two big fires within it. The first was like a few weeks after it opened and it was actually in the section where the pirates have like burned down the village and um, they don't know how it kind of started. They think it was a hydraulics thing, but as customers were leaving the ride, they kept saying, you guys know there's a fire downstairs, right? And all the ride hoppers were like, no, 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 no. The Imagineers, like they're really good. It's not real fire. And it wasn't until there was like smoke billowing out of the ride that they realized that there was a massive problem. And that whole area actually kind of burned down. Um, and it was a little bit creepy, actually, like one of the animatronics burned and actually looked like a, a real dead human being. It was really strange. Um, and then the second time was in 1970. And some... Um, some audience member was uh, in the boat smoking a cigarette like you could do back in the 70s and flicked his cigarette into a plastic fruit basket. That's right where um, it's where the bridge is, where it was. It used to be the uh, selling off the brides. And they've now recently converted that into um, the red haired lady selling off some some various plunder. And that whole area went up, but it burned some parts so perfectly that they couldn't tell if it was painted or had actually been charred. So if you've got a keen eye and you see that bridge in uh, the Disneyland Pirates 
there is one post that is the original post that is still burned and charred. Wow. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I have to check out that book. That sounds really interesting. And that sort of folklore. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, there's so many others. I'll, I'll, next time I come, I'll have to tell you the one that's my other favorite. That's the haunted mansion, um, where some guy brought in a gun thinking that he could shoot the ghosts. Uh, and it, again, if you've got a keen eye, you can find the, the bullet holes that's that are still in. That's pure immersion yeah. right there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So Amanda, this has all been really great info. And I think the audience is going to learn a ton but let's get a little bit more specific about how they maybe can break into this industry. And that's our creative house section. So the idea is whenever someone turns off this podcast tonight, tomorrow, after listening to all the great info you provided, they're armed with the three or four very tactical things, very minutia things that they can do to get on the road to becoming a VFX participant, artist, what have you. Sure. Um, so probably the very first thing that you should do is go and download some of the software that we use. Um, you know, the Adobe creative suite is probably the, the easiest gateway that you can do. Um, there's a number of others. And so if you download some of the software, they've got loads of tutorials, usually on the company's website, where you can go and start to learn what the software is like, and you can start to see, um, how some of these things are developed and uh, start to try it out for yourself and see which area you might be kind of interested in. Um, then go to some of the forums, ask questions, maybe post those on Instagram or Twitter because people start to um, feedback for you really quickly. And um, the other thing that you can do is also go to YouTube and start to look at some of the breakdowns of your favorite films because that also starts to show some of the pipeline. So go to the Guardians of the Galaxy breakdown and start to see how we make some of those movies, see the Harry Potter ones. And that's kind of your first step to see if you are interested um, and can and can start to understand some of the softwares that we use. Um, I would really recommend looking into an art school. Uh, we spend so much time talking about craft and the foundations of art. So you really need to learn all of the rules so that you can understand why you're going to break them later. So learn to paint, learn about light and composition, um, learn about sculpting if you want to be a modeler or dancing and general movement if you want to be an actor and, um, and do some of the animations. Uh, after that, learn your sciences. Some people are really surprised at how much math and physics we have. And uh, you, you really need to understand, especially gravity and, um, and a lot of other math. Uh, there's so much just trigonometry and, um, and other kind of <laughs> math-based equations that we need to use, even for stuff like texturing that uh, a lot of people are surprised by. Um, then you also should probably get a little bit of a primer in coding um, with Python and C++. We use Linux machines traditionally. So if you can get yourself like a little Raspberry Pi and learn how to navigate through some of the file structures in a Linux-based fashion, that's really helpful. Um, the final thing that I think is start to learn how you can take care of yourself get some pretty basic understanding of what contract law is if you're going to be a freelancer and um, how you can uh, communicate with clients as to what like payment structures are going to be. Um, then 
get yourself a health plan. If you're going to be moving from company to company every three to six months, it's a really good idea to make sure that you're not relying on a company to provide like health and dental. Uh, same thing with retirement, same thing with any of the else. So, you know, you really want to make sure that you're protecting yourself as you're moving and being um, quite mobile. Um, and then, you know, maybe even get a passport. If you've got a company that says we need you here in two weeks, but it's on the other side of the world, you, you want to be ready for that. You want to say, yes, let's get a visa. That's amazing. I feel like that was um, both inspiring and for me, very scary because when the word math comes up, it's kind of game over for me. But <laughs> You have some oh well. people tapping out at that point. <laughs> so many people come to me and say, oh God, my, my son really wants to work in movies and, and loves visual effects, you know, and, and they're really not very good at math and everything, but they're a great drawer. And I'm like, no, go, go back. <laughs> I can learn all of, uh, all of your trig. Cause yeah, you're going to have it here. <laughs> That's good advice. Um, so what's next for you? And also what do you think is next? You did mention earlier, um, about some new rides, taking things to the next level. So we're definitely interested in what you're thinking about and also what's going to happen in the world that you're working in. We've got a lot of stuff um, where we're trying to add in a lot more interactivity to some of these rides. Um, we are moving away from this idea that rides are linear, and um, we really want the audience to be in control of some of these narratives, but we want them to be quite organic. Um, so right now, a lot of the in interactivity that you might have in a ride is like kind of a shoot 'em up game which is fun, but really all that you're looking at is a score that goes up and down. Um, so what we're trying to do, and I touched on this with the adventure machine, is um, a car full of people can go through and see one screen. And if they shoot more zombies on the right, then the car will move to the right and then they'll have a different story play out in front of them. Conversely, if they choose the left, a new story will come out there. But we're going to take that one step further. You know, if you shoot everything on the right, and then you start a fire explosion and move to the next screen, you'll see the glow from fire that you set off from screen one and screen two. Um, so multiple tiered levels of interactivity, again, trying to create something that's organic that you feel like you have control over. Uh, and we also, we, we want this to be a repeatable experience where um, you are a lot more social. So we've got ones that are also kind of like drop towers and, um, it's called tower battle. And so two sides will maybe be competing against each other. And so you have to like make the other team drop lower, or you might have challenges that you need to create as a team in order to raise everyone up. Um, and we're also looking at ways where if you uh, have a certain outcome to your ride, that maybe cast members throughout the park might know what that outcome is and respond to you differently. Uh, so, Galaxy's Edge is going to be the first one that does this. Um, the ride that I'm thinking of is um, it's the uh, Smuggler's Run, and it's all about you. Now, this is the theory. Again, we haven't had the, the ride open yet. Um, it's all about you piloting the Millennium Falcon, but because Han Solo is the best pilot in the world, we can't have you always doing the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs. So we need to potentially have you lose more often than most, but it is still possible to do it in 12. And if you are successful, then other cast members will know and then be able to treat you differently throughout the rest of your day. And then of course you can go back and do it again and see if you can get a better score and, and do it, you know, and try to compete against your friends. Um, but that kind of additional layering 
of um, of interactivity and immersion throughout the land is something that we're looking towards. That's, that's awesome. amazing. Yeah. That 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 sounds like so much fun, and just you are in it. You you are a character in that universe, and especially Star Wars, people are going to lose their their minds. I think. Agreed. I mean, we're just really looking at this to be more like immersive theater than an actual attraction base. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, this has been amazing. Thank you. Uh, our first ever European episode. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. And I think, you know, as you store, sort of start releasing some of these projects, I want to check back in with you. I think Jed does as well. Absolutely. Um, for a second timer. Would you be open to that? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I, we'd love that. Well, they uh, will bring some of the other gang in, but yeah. That that'd be great. So how can people find you and keep tabs on you specifically if, if, if you're open to that um, and they can kind of live vicariously through your VFX journey? My website is uh, johnstonebat.com. Um, you can always find me on Instagram or Twitter as a pixel pixie. So check out framestore.com to see uh, some of the additional rides that are coming through from the immersive entertainment group. It's really, really exciting. And just want to say thank you again. This was really, really fun. Yeah. Thank you guys very much. This was a blast. Sean, uh, what are are you doing over there? I'm glad you asked, Jed. I'm on Expedia.com booking uh, flights to Universal Studios, Florida, and to get me some Harry Potter world experience. Yeah. We're both very, very pumped after this episode. It's like, uh, that's gotta be somebody's dream job out there. And we just told him how to do it. So I feel it very really proud is. of it. I feel proud of us. Yes. I'm proud of us, Sean. Hopefully you take a lot away as always check out the show notes at creativehowpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at creative how pod and smash the likes and subscribe. Please subscribe. Give us some great reviews. Don't give us some bad ones. Just great ones. <laughs> <laughs>